You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to 1 Timothy. Our focus today will be on 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. I'll be reading 3, 14 through 4, 10. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great, indeed we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, in Christ's name, not because of anything in ourselves, but in His name we plead that the Spirit of truth would minister to us now and guide us into truth, steer us away from evil, fill our hearts with thanksgiving and joy for all that is ours in Christ. In His name we pray now, amen. So it's not my normal practice at all to interrupt a series for a holiday-themed message, but I didn't have time to properly develop the next portion of John as I'd adequately like to have done. And so I've also arrived at the point where there are certain things that I've said in this pulpit Many of you have never heard them, 
and those of you that have heard them have long forgotten them. And so I think they bear repeating. When Lloyd-Jones took up the question of when to stop preaching a sermon in his classic book, Preaching and Preachers, he said it's not an issue of number, but of one rule. Stop preaching that sermon when it ceases to grip you, when it ceases to move you, when it ceases to be a means of blessing to you yourself. Stop then because from there on your preaching of it will be mechanical and indeed can even become a performance. Nothing is worse than that. My first series here was through the book of Matthew. We spent over two years in the gospel of Matthew. And immediately following that, having installed elders that second year, we went into a series in Timothy. I'm curious, how many of you were present as we went through Timothy? Okay. Um, We went through Timothy... And so I first preached from this text, August 17th, 2014. And I still think it has something for us today. I first titled that this message, False Teachers, with the S's being dollar signs. False Teachers, taking a uh, hat tip to to Shylan on the title there, False Teachers. But today I want to more emphatically focus and draw the connection between false teaching and thanksgiving feasts. False teaching and thanksgiving feasts. Not the kind of thanksgiving feasts that come around once a year, but the kind you're meant to enjoy every day. Whenever you think of false teaching, do you make that connection at all? Thanksgiving, feasting, gratitude, thankfulness, and whenever you think of thankfulness, gratitude, feasting, joy, do you think of false teaching? Do you think of them being related at all? And what I hope you see by the end of this message is that false teaching means small thanksgiving feasts. False teaching means small Thanksgiving feast. I hope that'll make sense. This text, I still believe, might very well be the most full, it's not to say it's complete, but the most full treatment of false teaching and false teachers anywhere that we find in the New Testament. Just these few short verses, one through five, the most full dealing with false teaching and false teachers. Here we learn who the authority is concerning false teaching. Who's the authority that we can go to 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 lay out false teaching? We see the authority on false teaching. We see the time of false teaching, the targets of false teaching, the source of false teaching, the character of false teachers, the content of false teaching, and the correction to false teaching. And as we near the end... I think you'll see when we get to that correction part why it is that thanksgiving chokes false teaching and false teaching chokes thanksgiving. Your mouth and heart cannot be full of both at the same time. So, the authority on false teaching and false teachers, verse 1. The Spirit expressly says... 
the authority on false teaching, concerning false teaching, is the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit of truth, He bears witness to Jesus. John 15, 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. So the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, and is guiding us into truth means His teaching us concerning the One who said He is the truth. The Spirit guides into truth, John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, those two promises are immediately and directly made to the apostles specifically. So where can we go then to learn from the Spirit today? Where did Paul go? The Spirit expressly says. Where did Paul hear the Spirit say these things? There are two possible answers. Paul could have heard the Spirit say these things concerning false teachers and teaching from prophets and apostles, either Old Testament prophets, New Testament prophets and apostles, either written or spoken, prophets and apostles of God. That's where Paul could have gotten it, or Paul could be saying he received it directly himself As an apostle of Jesus Christ. So perhaps Paul has in mind some number or some specific portion of the Old Testament dealing with false teachers. Or perhaps he has in mind, say, Matthew's gospel, where we have Christ saying, Matthew 24, 10 through 11. Many will then fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Or, Paul might be thinking of something he directly received from the Spirit, such as he imparted to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 29, and 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So how is it that Paul knows that the Spirit expressly says this? And I believe the best answer is all the above. The Scriptures bear testimony to this. Old and New Testament, prophets and apostles alike, again and again. And Paul has, as an apostle, heard the Spirit directly testifying to them concerning these things. So still though, where can you go to hear the Spirit, the authority on false teaching... Teach you concerning these things? And the answer is, you go to the same place Paul did. Not that you go to the Holy Spirit to directly receive revelation concerning false teaching. You go to the Spirit-inspired prophets and apostles of the Old and New Testament, and you go to Paul himself and those things he directly received from the Spirit. You go to the Scriptures. Paul says the Spirit says this, and the Spirit speaks 
And he speaks still through the Holy Scriptures. He speaks here. He speaks now. He speaks today. Too many are longing for some kind of dream, some kind of experience, some kind of feeling, some kind of emotion, some kind of direct word from God about something so trivial when He's spoken to them concerning His Son in the Scriptures. So imagine your spouse spouse telling you, I'm pregnant. And you respond, what's for dinner? Take that contrast and magnify it infinitely. God is speaking about a son and we say, but what about X? We ignore His word and we long for direct speech about what we're really interested in. We want God to be excited about our idols. We don't like the way the conversation's going, and we're bored. And we're trying to get God to change the subject. And since the Bible is, it's there, can't really manipulate it, we want something direct, immediate. And This is like longing for a match in the light of the noonday sun. God has spoken, and He's spoken in the most sufficient, full, glorious, exciting, powerful of ways. The Spirit speaks now through those very Scriptures. In the book of Hebrews, Psalm 95 is quoted, and the author introduces his his reference to Psalm 95 in this way. The Holy Spirit says. Not the Holy Spirit said. The Holy Spirit says. When He puts Psalm 95 on that piece of paper, sending that letter out, He's telling us this is not something the Holy Spirit said. This is something the Holy Spirit says. In the Scriptures, the Spirit speaks, and it's by them that He leads us into truth, and thus, He teaches us concerning false teaching and false teachers. 1 John 4, 1-6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. That's the Apostle John speaking as one of those who bore witness to the Word, living and risen. And he says, whoever knows God listens to us. That's an apostolic us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 
false teachers are tested by the, inspirit, by the Spirit-inspired Word of Christ. And the truth of who Christ is has just been elegantly put by Paul in this very passage. This mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The Spirit is the authority on false teaching because He is the authority on Christ. Right now, by this very text, every time you're opening your Bible and you're learning more of who, more truth of who Christ is and what He's done and all that's yours in Him, every time that happens, every time the Spirit teaches you concerning Christ in the Word, you are learning concerning false teaching and false teachers. The Antichrist that's against that. What does the Spirit teach us? Well, first He teaches us here concerning the win of false teaching and false teachers. The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times. When are these latter times? I believe many Christians are numb to the threat of false teaching because they misunderstand a phrase like the last days or the latter times. When are these dimes? When? when? And the Bible's answer may surprise you. Now. When are these latter times? They're right now. They already were then. So they certainly are right now. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these Last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of ages has come. 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it is the last hour. This language of the last days, last hour, end of ages that we see in the epistles several times is communicated in the gospels in the language of the kingdom of God. And in some instances, you see that the kingdom of God is something future and something to be expected. But in many instances, the kingdom of God is something that's on, on the cusp or it's even already present. It's already here. And the kingdom is simply the rule and reign, the redemptive rule and reign of God's king, his Lord over men, the incarnate son, Jesus Christ. The last days are here because God's king has come. What was unfathomable to the Jews is that there would be false teaching in the last days. Because in their mind, last days mean the king's come. He's going to deal with all his enemies. And so what, what blew their minds is that the kingdom has come in Christ, but it's not fully here yet. And so the end of ages has come upon them. He's making a new people. And the church is this outpost of the future, the future kingdom breaking into the present. And so the kingdom can be here 
and yet not fully here, so that false teaching can abound during this time of the end of the ages. That was unthinkable to them. To us, we think, end, false teaching. Those go together. What we fail to comprehend is that it's here, it's now, it's been since Christ. We are in the last days. What can we expect? More of the same. What can we expect? Well, because redemption is here. Because Christ is risen. Because He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Because all enemies are being put under His feet. Because He's King, we can expect to go light, to go forward and conquer. And the darkness will not be able to stop it. But because it's not fully here yet, we can expect God's truth to be violently opposed by darkness and lies. The intensity of the battle is such because the sure and decisive blow has already been dealt to the enemy. Who are the targets of this fierce and violent warfare? The Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. Some will depart from the faith. So these are persons who once professed the faith, and now they've departed from it. The false teaching that the Spirit is warning us about specifically in this instance is not a false teaching out there. It's out there. That's not what He's warning us here concerning. It's not a false teaching out there. It's a false teaching that can occur occur in here. In chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, Paul mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander who have made shipwreck of the faith. Chapter 6, verse 21, he speaks of some who have swerved from the faith. These are persons who appeared to be Christians. They made a profession of Christ. They were in a position of having the light shine on them externally. They've heard the gospel again and again. They've made a public commitment to Christ in a time that could cost them their lives by following their Lord in baptism. But the darkness that remained within eventually evidenced itself that they were never of Christ as they latched on to these lies and departed from the faith. 1 John 2.19 speaks of them. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, that's the ultimate thread of false teaching, and the one specifically in view here. The kind of false teaching that can damn your soul, the kind of false teaching that will make you prove apostate, not of Christ. But there are many lesser kinds of false teachings that have deeply detrimental effects. For instance, a Christian who's a true Christian that just remains weak and ignorant in their faith and is malnourished and poorly taught and never comes to know anything otherwise, can be taught that they can lose their salvation and they walk the rest of their days in fear. The joy of the Lord choked. Worry, anxiety plaguing their souls because though they, there's this part of them that says, 
Christ is all my salvation. There's a part of them. Did I mess it up? There are some Christians that aren't concerned at all about secondary issues. They know the gospel. They're confident of their security in Christ. But secondary issues to them are secondary issues. And that means they're not important. And this is detrimental. Imagine you have a bulletproof vest and you know your vitals are protected. Are you then reckless and careless in a war with the rest of your body? That's the posture I think many Christians have. Well, I'm saved. I know that. And so all other issues of truth aren't important to them. Just because the heart is protected, do you want to lose an arm or an eye? A lax attitude towards God's total truth as He's given it to us in His Word is really this, this kind of statement to the Father. I don't care to look too much like Jesus. I just want to look so much like Jesus, but not too much like Jesus. And it's naive to think also that believing a little lie, that being lax towards, towards secondary issues, that, that if I get this wrong or right, not that big of a deal, it's, a, it's naive to think I can go wrong here and I won't go wrong somewhere else down the line. That believing some little lie won't lead towards believing some big lie down the line. So these are the targets that are in view specifically here. Who's pulling the trigger? Who opposes the truth so? Who's propagating these lies? The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. False teaching is fundamentally demonic. There's certainly varying degrees of demonic involvement. Every gospel minister, be he Charles Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones, every one of them have blind spots. Truths, that they will remain ignorant to, that they don't get exactly right, that their teaching concerning those things is categorically false. We shouldn't say they're false teaching, uh, that, they're, that they're like guilty of being a, a false teacher in the sense of Scripture speaking of in these instances. But the forces of darkness no doubt want to leverage every instance like that in their lives as much as possible and magnify the effects of that kind of false teaching in the lives that hear it as much as possible. Even though the overall effect by God's goodness and grace of that man's ministry will be an effect for good and for blessing and salvation and sanctification. Nonetheless, where do such lies come from? Who's behind them? John eight forty four, Jesus speaks of Satan as the father of lies. So that's one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum are those and that our text is really concerned about here are those who are guilty of false teaching to the degree of what I think is, is best called heresy. Whenever it gets at the gospel itself and maybe even the Christian life to, to such a degree that it, it causes serious harm and damage. 
intentionally leading others astray. We must not forget the nature of the war before us and the forces behind all false teaching. Ephesians 6, 10-12, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In the Old Testament, we see false teaching and false teachers False religions are expressly said to be demonic. So Leviticus 17.7, God is telling them, you need to bring all sacrifices to the tent, to the tabernacle. And here's the reason why. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. The sacrifices of these kind of false religions that they're involved in, he says when they do that, they're, they're sacrificing to goat demons. Deuteronomy 32, 17 anticipates Israel's future apostasy and speaks of it this way. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had already come, whom your fathers had never dreaded. When Israel offered up their sons in worship to Molech, Psalm 107.37 says they were doing so to demons. Whenever the masses enter Planned Parenthood to offer up their children to Molech, it's demonic. You can see it palpably whenever advocates for the unborn oppose the forces of darkness, and they react with such vitriol, violence, antagonism, that's because they have fully imbibed the teaching of demons to the point where they will encourage child sacrifice for those demons. All of us to varying degrees, believe lies. None of us have an absolute grip on truth. And you are naive not to realize the forces behind those lies and the impact they want to have with those lies on your life. These lies harm us. We should ever be seeking the truth. Now, again, our text is specifically focused on damning lies. Lies that will send a soul to hell. These are persons who have devoted themselves the deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. They are demon-taught, not spirit-taught. It's the difference between Augustine and Pelagius. Augustine believed some wrong things. Some wrong things that had serious effects on the church down the line. But Augustine was a graced and spirit-blessed instrument for the truth of God, and he continues to bless the church. Still, Pelagius was condemned as a heretic, teaching that were essentially good, denying original sin, man's depravity and lostness in Adam, saying that we can basically save ourselves 
by just willing to do good. Augustine was duped by some lies. Pelagius, no doubt, said some true things. But he was devoted to the teaching of demons. One source of false teaching is demons. How do these demons deliver their lies? Through false teachers. Men like Pelagius, Joseph Smith, Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen, Bill Johnson, Stephen Furtick. And next we learn from the Spirit the character of such men through whom demonic teaching comes. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and, the, and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. This false teaching comes through insincere liars with seared consciences. They are insincere. Literally, it means they're hypocrites. They are shysters, fraudsters, hucksters, imposters, scammers, hoaxsters, hustlers, phonies, fakes, crooks, snakes. What is their aim? 1 Timothy 6, 4-5 tells us they are puffed up with pride and they believe that godliness is a means of gain. They're in this for glory and money. You can see this just taking one false teaching as prime example, the prosperity gospel. Where does it thrive? Poor neighborhoods in the U.S., poor nations in South America and Africa. It thrives. And then consider that Joyce Meyer has a net worth of eight million. T.D. Jakes, 20 million. Joe Osteen, 100 million. Galatians 6, 11 through 14, Paul says that false teachers are seeking to have them circumcised. They're saying, you need to keep the law in order to be justified. You need to keep the law in order for your salvation. And he says they're doing this so that they may boast, so that they may glory in your flesh. And Paul says the message of the cross is that the cross is our only boast, our only glory. It's because by faith in Christ, who lived to be our righteousness, who died to bear our wrath, Through faith in Him, we have salvation in Him alone. That's the message of the cross. Why do false teachers say anything otherwise? Why do they say, yes, but, to the message of the cross? So that they may glory and boast and for gain. How can they do this? How can a person come to this point? Their conscience is seared. They've so sinned against their conscience that it's like scar tissue that's dead. It's numb. It's unfeeling. They don't bat an eye at their sin. The road to false teaching begins with moral compromise. John MacArthur writes, Doctrinal purity must be accompanied by purity of life. There's an inseparable link between truth and morality, between right belief and right behavior. Consequently, theological error has its roots in moral rather than intellectual soil. People often teach wrong doctrine to accommodate their sin. 
That truth is borne out by the immorality that so often characterizes false teachers. I think you can see this. And how often in this letter, Paul is dealing with false teaching and false teachers. And he tells Timothy again and again, these truths concerning the conscience. A good conscience, a clear conscience. 1 Timothy 1.5 The aim of our charge is a love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 1.18-19 This charge I entrust to you, Timothy my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. It's not enough to just hold the faith. Hold the faith with a good conscience. You begin to compromise where your conscience convicts you concerning your life, and you'll begin to find your hold on the faith loosening. By rejecting this, Paul goes on there, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Concerning deacons, Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.9, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. False teachers are crooked men, and crooked men produce crooked speech. Jesus told the Pharisees, Matthew 12, How can you but speak evil when your hearts are evil? An evil tree produces evil fruit. Okay, but what then is the content of their false teaching? Verse 3, They forbid marriage and require abstinence from food. They forbid good things that God meant to be enjoyed. They call good evil. So, just imagine you're completely ignorant to what lied ahead in the text. You're seeing Paul lay out all these things concerning false teaching. And now he's going to say, okay, here's what they teach. Are you a bit surprised that he comes to this? This is the content of their false teaching. They forbid marriage and prohibit foods. Were you expecting something worse? Now, in forbidding these, they were likely making them necessary for salvation or critical to sanctification. This is how how you really draw near to God. There's nothing more sinister than damning souls trying to add to Christ either in sanctification or salvation. And I want you to see how seemingly benign, how seemingly non-climactic and overtly dark the false teaching is here, how subtle, and you see it in this way, this verse surprises Were you expecting something indulgent in dark deeds instead of restrictive? And I think it's actually in this kind of false teaching, though, that you can really see Satan's aim in all of his false teaching. Satan may say eat, or he may say fast, but regardless of what he says... His aim is to take, not give. He may say indulge. He may say abstain. 
But whatever he says, his aim is to steal, kill, and destroy. In Genesis 3, God said, The day you eat, you'll be like God. And by that lie, he robbed. And then he comes along later and says to another, If you don't eat, you'll be like God. And in both, he's offering up this promise, but he's not giving anything. He's taking everything. And those who are victims of this kind of false teaching that you see here are doubly robbed. They're doubly robbed because they're robbed not only of trusting in Christ and Christ alone and looking to Him. They're robbed not only in that aspect, they're robbed of the good things they should enjoy in this life. And they think by abstaining from them, they'll get more life. And by doing this, Satan doubly robs them of a kind of life and enjoyment and pleasure and joy in this life and in the life to come. Demonic lies, they steal, kill, and destroy, not only by perversion of good, but by prohibition of good. And it's in that kind of prohibition, abstain, a kind of holy posture that that might be assumed with it. It's actually in that that I think you more clearly see Satan's aim in all his lies, which is to take, to rob, to steal. God gives liberally and He gives excessively to all humanity and He gives super abundantly and eternally to those who are in Christ. C.S. Lewis got in this so well, at this so well in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which if you're unfamiliar with, are a series of letters from a senior demon, Screwtape, to his nephew. And because they're written by demons, two demons, you have to read them backwards. So references to father are references to Satan. And whenever you hear language about the enemy, that's God. And so Screwtape instructs his nephew saying, the obedience which the enemy demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he's absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. And then he continues, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and satisfying form, we are in a sense on the enemy's ground. The demons realize this, you recognize this. When they deal with any pleasure in its healthy sense, they're on God's grounds. All good things come from his hand. He continues on. 
We are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He has made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That is the formula. To get a man's soul and give him nothing in return. That's what really gladdens our Father's heart. And so do you see with this, when you really understand the gospel and the Father's heart to love and give you Christ and in Christ give you everything as a means to enjoying Him more? When you understand the gospel in this way, it's precisely then that you're not only able to detect false teaching, you have grown immune to false teaching. False teaching is not attractive because you are full and thankful and your heart overflows with gratitude and whatever promises are set before you, you realize I have all that and more in Christ. That's why we see the correction to false teaching as it is laid before us here. They forbid marriage, require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Note that only those who believe the truth can war against this false teaching. They require this abstinence. They forbid marriage from these things that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And the way to fight this is with thanksgiving. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You want to deal with false teaching? Return thanks. Fill your heart with gratitude for your spouse for your children, for your friends, for your family, for your church. For your turkey, your ham. Enjoy your apple pie. Enjoy all the goodness that He lavishes on you despite that you only deserve an eternity in hell and return gratitude and thanks and praise to God. And false teaching will have a hard time getting a grip in your heart, in your soul. Everything created by God is good and it's to be enjoyed. Sure, good things can be abused, but abuse is no argument against use. Just because one guy uses a tool to make a mess of his car doesn't mean that you couldn't use it to fix yours. Abuse is no argument against right use. One man's drunkenness doesn't mean that everyone else needs to abstain from God's good gift. It might mean that that man needs to in this life as, as we remain in our broken and fallen state, but abuse does not argue against right use. If you idolize a certain gift, 
a certain goodness that God has put in your life, if you idolize it, your abstinence doesn't ultimately fix the situation. Now, because of your brokenness, you might need to remain abstinent from alcohol all of your life. You might not ever get to enjoy that gift just as, as it is without making something evil out of it. But even so, recognize that abstinence alone doesn't win the battle. The problem is a failure to worship God in all of His goodness that He provides. Mortification needs to always be paired with vivification. You can't just put the idolization of that thing to death. You have to turn and look at all of God's goodness and return thanks and praise to Him. Otherwise, you're in the position of Eve and you're thinking, God's holding out on me. You need to come to the place where you recognize His goodness, His lavishness, His generosity, His benevolence, the riches that He's poured out on you in Christ and respond with gratitude and thankfulness. Otherwise, it's like if you're battling with with lust, that's the idol and false teaching that you're imbibing. If you're battling and you cap it off, you've dealt with that, you only have pride burst from the pipe somewhere else down the line. The way you kill that sin is not just simply by killing that sin, but by living unto God with gratitude and joy and thankfulness, filling your heart and life. The truer mark of sanctification, hear nothing else, hear this, and let this sink into your soul. The truer mark of sanctification overall, again, there might be areas in your life where you just say, I can't do that. I can't ever touch a video game. I can't ever drink alcohol. Whatever it is, there might be areas of life you need to abstain from. But the truer mark of sanctification overall is not how many good things you can abstain from, but how many you can enjoy as an act of worship. How many can you receive and not get distracted by them as an idol, but turn them into an instrument of returning thanks and gratitude and praise to God? Believers are instructed here to make good things holy things. So the truer mark of sanctification is not when you say, I have to abstain from this good thing. The truer mark of sanctification is whenever you sanctify God's good things and you make good things holy things. How's that so? The same way instruments in the, in the tabernacle were sanctified and made holy. Not because of in their construction or because of, of how they were made, what they were made of. That's not why those things were considered holy. They were holy because they were separated unto holy worship. They were separated for God's use. And so we're to take good things that God sets before all humanity and we're to say, it's not only a good thing, it's a holy thing. Separated to express thanksgiving and worship and praise to my God. And how is that done? By the Word of God and prayer. Some take this as a reference to God's declaring His creation good. Others as declaring all foods clean. Jesus in the New Testament. I don't think that gets at it. What does it mean that we make these things holy by the Word of God? I think it's telling us that whenever we take this good gift and we receive it as Scripture has told us that our God gives it. As we, as we receive it as God tells us He's given it, and we use it according to and obedience to how He instructs us from His Word, 
when we receive His, His good gifts walking in His ways, then it's made holy by the Word of God and prayer. And I think He's just saying, whenever, whenever you receive this good gift and you're returning praise and thanksgiving to your God for this good gift, it's made holy. It stands up whenever you eat that bite of apple pie and you say, this is good. And then somewhere in your soul, there just wells up, God, thank you. This isn't Jesus, but this is just a faint, one more faint ray of all your absolute good. And every other good on this earth is a, is a reflection of your goodness. And so thank you. And whenever that happens, as you're enjoying it in a way that I'm not going to be gluttonous, I'm not going to idolize this, I'm not going to make much of, of the person who made it in a way that idolizes them either, but just thank them, draw attention to it, praise them in a way that's appropriate. Whenever I do that, this apple pie stands apart from all the other apple pies that are eaten by unbelievers. It's made holy. And that's what you're to do with good gifts that we all enjoy. Innumerable. We are awash in them. And too often, our mouths are shut. Our hearts, hearts are filled with discontent. Ingratitude, unthankfulness, and in that state we're easy prey for false teaching. So when it comes to false teaching, and you're looking at it and you realize, I need to be alert, I need to know the truth, I need to contend for the faith, I need to fight the good fight, I need to be alert, I need to be strong in the Lord, I need to put on the armor of God. Don't hear that simply as a life of drudgery and hardness. There is a hardness to it. There is a seriousness to it. There is a kind of sorrow in life that this warfare against false teaching means. Sorrow over sin. Sorrow of those who are our own sin. Sorrow over other sins. Sorrow over false teaching. The lives impacted by it. The glory that should be Christ that isn't attributed to Him. But the way, don't forget this, the way you wage this serious warfare is by joy in Christ. You're about to go out into the world for another week, should our Lord tarry. And the way you will fight through this week and into the next is in the joy of the Lord. We don't need Satan's promises because of all that is ours in Christ. Knowing the truth, walking in the truth means knowing Christ, walking in Christ, putting on, putting on the armor of God means putting on Christ. The fight of the faith is a fight for faith in Christ. And so go, wage warfare. Enjoy yourself. Make good things holy things by enjoying them as an act of worship. Enjoy them in such a way that you're expressing to God. 
this is not you. But this is good. And it's a dim reflection of you who are all together perfectly, ultimately good. This is a ray and you are the sun. You are all goodness and all this comes from your hand. And because of Christ, I have you. I don't just have a pie for a time. I have you, the God of all good, for all time in Christ. And so let every good gift be an opportunity to raise your heart up in gratitude, worship, thankfulness. I'll leave you with the charge of Nehemiah 8.10. Go your way. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of Yahweh is your strength. Let's pray. Holy Father, I pray right now, something is just astounding us at your goodness in this. That the command to be strong in the Lord is a command to have hearts filled with gratitude and thankfulness. It's a command to have our eyes open to your goodness that is flooding us. And that is ours forevermore in Christ. So Father... I pray strength is welling up now as we're confessing, oh Lord, forgive us. That, it, that, our, that our pleading for forgiveness is actually an act of thanksgiving. Lord, forgive us for all this goodness. Thank you for all this. Thank you for Christ. And that I don't just have these things. I have the God of all these things. So fill our hearts again, I pray, with gratitude, thankfulness, and joy. And may we walk out into a world of darkness with that light, a world full of lies with this truth, armed and ready, content and glad, making good things holy things. To your praise and glory. In the strong name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.